Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Lindsay Shepard, a fellow with the International Security Program. And I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Project. On this week's episode, we are joined by Dr. Diane Deulis, a Senior Research Fellow at National Defense University, and by Austin Wallen, a partner at Artist Ventures, to discuss the new developments in biotechnology and the bioeconomy. Well, Caitlin and I are so pleased to be joined here today by Dr. Diane Deulis, a Senior Research Fellow at the National Defense University. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. We're so pleased to have you here. And we are also joined today by Austin Wall, a partner at Artist Ventures. Lizzie, thanks for having me. Well, we have two excellent guests here to help us unpack the world of biotechnology, synthetic biology, computational biology, and all of these terms that really come together. So Austin, I'd like to turn to you first and let's help us uh, get the lay of the land. What is biotech broadly? What are we talking about? Thanks, Lindsay. It's useful to frame biotech on a timeline because its meaning has evolved over the years from its origin through really three major eras to today. So the original term was coined about 100 years ago in 1919 by a Hungarian agriculture engineer named Karl Orecki. And to him, biotechnology was the process by which raw materials from nature could be upgraded into socially useful products. And the the first era of biotech was molecular and cell biology. And biotech was changed forever by the discovery of DNA structure and proteins, leading to the development of Genentech, often considered the first modern biotech company with the creation of synthetic insulin using recombinant DNA in E. coli bacteria. And you can think about that as our exploring and tinkering with our biological hardware. The second era is genomics, which the Human Genome Project kicked off in the 1990s, wrapped up in the early 2000s. It was a really ambitious project to sequence and map all the genes in the human body. And that gave us the understanding of the software that drives cell processes. And a key leader that developed and advanced that field is uh, Illumina. And the third era, that's just getting kicked off is we're taking the tools, methods, and advances in computer science and engineering, and we're applying those to biological research. This is something my team calls tech bio, where the discoveries are happening in biology, but they're being driven by technology. And this has been my team's main area of focus for the last five years or so. And MIT calls this the convergence revolution. And I don't think that's an overstatement. Really interesting. So that's super helpful to have that that timeline framing. Can you um, help us understand with some like example use cases or uses? What are we talking about in in the tech bio framing? Does this include things like synthetic biology and computational biology that we've been hearing about for a couple of years? They absolutely are a part of it. And just for the audience's sake, when we're talking about synthetic biology, we're talking about the modification or creation of biological organisms using targeted tools. And computational biology is applying AI, which is really machine learning, 
to large data sets of biological data. And a couple of quick real world examples for you. The first, and this is super topical given uh, COVID from the last year, the COVID vaccine would have taken years in the past to develop. But in the early phase of the pandemic, the mysterious respiratory virus that was circulating in Wuhan, China was digitally sequenced and that code was posted online. It was then analyzed using computational biotechniques and within 66 days, a vaccine candidate started a first in human trial relying on synthetic biology for several key steps in the development. And we could take this a step further in the future very soon by designing and prototyping vaccines in biofoundries. And then that code could be transferred to distributed small scale biomanufacturing sites near point of care. And that could reduce many of the manufacturing bottlenecks and the cold supply chain challenges we've seen during the COVID rollout. And just sticking with infectious disease, one more quick example is gene editing. There's actually two companies in our portfolio I can use as an example that are developing functional cures for DNA replicating viruses like HIV and antibiotic resistant superbug bacteria, both using CRISPR, which is the leading synbiotech in the field of gene editing. And Diane, Austin mentioned China, but we know that the U.S. isn't the only big actor in this field. And you recently wrote on the biomanufacturing race between China and the U.S. Can you talk a bit about that and in which ways the United States might need to increase you know, speed or development to remain at the forefront or to get to the forefront of biotech? I'll start answering that question also by tagging on a little bit to Austin's response. I love his description of the timeline of biotechnology. And as we start to think about the U.S. growth in biotech, and I agree also with MIT's description of this as a convergence revolution, we've also been calling it the biotech revolution. And in thinking about that, I want to add an additional term to that, which is bioeconomy. So all of the things that Austin has described are components of products that are becoming a much larger part of the U.S. economy writ large. Biotechnology has always been a big chunk of our economy, but as biotechnology expands beyond the traditional agriculture and medicine sectors into other sectors like energy and materials and commodities, different kinds of commodities, it's becoming a much larger portion of the U.S. economy. So if you think about China in that regard, China is competing with us for who is going to own the bioeconomy globally and economically in the future. So it's not just the U.S. competing to have a robust and fruitful biotech and bioeconomy that brings us great products and benefits, but it's also we need to compete economically um, with the Chinese in that space. So we're not just competing to who does something first or who develops you know, the first COVID vaccine, but we're really competing for future market share of this emerging part of the economy. I think that's right. And as Austin described, uh, things like biofoundries and building biological manufacturing platforms. The United States really needs to focus on building this as a piece of our critical infrastructure and part of our manufacturing base. One thing that COVID-19 demonstrated to us was the vulnerabilities in our supply chains writ large. And obviously for 
medicines and public health needs because it was in response to COVID. But really, the vulnerabilities go all across our supply chains, not just in the public health and medicine space. So biomanufacturing offers us a real opportunity right now to rebuild our supply chains post-COVID in a way that takes advantage of biological manufacturing. It's more sustainable than petrochemical manufacturing, for example, and it's a way that we can engage more of the workforce and educate more of the workforce to get into biomanufacturing. We will definitely have to come back to that, but I do have some questions for Austin. Since, Diane, you introduced this concept of a bioeconomy that sounds like it's it's beginning to grow. I get the sense that it's new. We have Austin here, who is a partner in a venture capital firm that is investing in these new companies. Austin, what is the maturity of the the technologies itself on that kind of the the newest form of of biotech? And what is the maturity of the bioeconomy itself? Some of these technologies are are pretty foundational and quite mature and proven. But most are very cutting edge and definitely just emerging. I'd say we're in the bottom of the second inning when it comes to biotech. And this third wave of convergence or tech bio is just getting kicked off. And it's going to be incredibly impactful to our daily lives over the next several decades seeing this play out. And to put some numbers behind it, McKinsey published research last year with some honestly pretty staggering figures. And they found or they believe that uh, there is potential to transform the global economy with two to four trillion of annual direct impact, producing 60 percent of the world's physical goods inputs and at the same time, easing 45% of the world's disease burden. So back to Diane's point about the opportunities that are in front of us for biomanufacturing in the U.S., there's immense opportunity. She mentioned petrochemicals. There's many other sectors like metallurgy. When you're talking about 60% of all physical goods inputs, we're likely in single digits today. So there's a lot of room to run and opportunity in front of us. I'd just like to jump in to ask Diane, you know, Austin mentioned that a couple of these technologies are are pretty mature, but a lot are just on their way. Um, In past episodes, we've talked with our experts about how the technology is already here and ready, but the national security community is not set up to be able to adopt it or use it quickly. Are we in a place that we could start planning for the future of biotech in the national security community, or are we already behind like in some of these other areas of emerging tech? That's really a great question. And I'm glad you asked that. I could offer the COVID-19 pandemic as an example of how we're living right now in an opportunity time. This is a perfect time to look at our response to COVID and say, how could we modernize our preparedness and response platforms to something like COVID-19 and use that as the template moving forward for other areas in national security where we could employ biotechnology. So for example, in our response to COVID-19, you know, COVID-19 was not a failure of our imagination. We had been planning for 
some kind of a pandemic. We exercised in the national security community every year for a pandemic of this scale. And so where did our preparedness and response fall down or where did it fall short? In my view, one big arena in which it fell short was that our platforms were not modernized to employ all of these new technologies in biotech that that we could have. So I could give an example of that in the arena of testing. So we waited a long time for a PCR test, a fundamental PCR test. We had problems scaling that and getting it available to everyone. And then we had to start thinking about antibody tests, right? And then we had to start thinking about pooled testing paradigms so we could figure out how to get kids back in school and people back to work. And then next generation sequencing of patients and virus writ large, the Chinese were able to do that on thousands of people at the height of the outbreak in Wuhan. We were not able to do that here. We were still developing our PCR test while they were doing next generation sequencing. So how do we get to that place where our platforms are modernized so that we can use the most cutting edge biotechnology in the interest of the response? So again, COVID-19 is sort of giving us this perfect opportunity to employ emerging biotech tools into the public health response space. And I would offer that as a template for how we could modernize many other areas of national security moving forward. And are you seeing movements in Congress or in other areas of the government to start looking at COVID as a test case and start implementing some of these changes? Or are we still too in the deep with COVID that no one's starting to look backwards to plan for the future? So I know that on the government side, there are going to be many, many after actions and lessons learned reports. From where I sit at the Department of Defense, the Department of Defense has contracted with Rand and MITRE to do some very large studies looking at our response and and, uh, where we might have some vulnerabilities. So I know there's going to be a lot of examination of the response. The challenge will be how well we implement mitigating the vulnerabilities that are revealed in those after actions. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Diane, that, you know, even unpacking this specific example of COVID, you have mentioned a variety of institutions and a variety of government organizations that that have a, a role or a stake in the bioeconomy and our response to biotech. So Austin, is there a a clear owner within uh, the U.S. government on kind of who owns the problem? Or is this something that that we're just now starting to think about? Oh Gosh, I think it's something we're just starting to think about, at least with our portfolio early in the pandemic. It was very unclear and confusing about where the chain of command was, who had authority over what area and who to even approach with interesting ideas and solutions. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for greater cooperation and coordination between industry and government. And that's something I think that we should start working on now. And as Diane mentioned before, this goes back to her statement about platforms and that we just don't have the platforms set up to rapidly respond to crises whether that's biological in nature with the pandemic, which we're talking about, which is a great example, but there's other areas that that could be improved too. Natural disasters, in some ways, COVID functions similar to a large-scale natural disaster. 
And so that sort of improvement could have a lot of applications. So what do we mean when you say platform? Is that like a like a set of processes that, you know, almost, you know, in case of emergency, here's what you do? Is this something like a like a chain of command, like you were mentioning, you know, the early days of figuring out who had authority and uh, who was kind of the point person. Is it like an actual technical platform? So I have to ask Diane what she meant by it, but I'll give you my interpretation <laughs> and we can go from there. So I think one, it's more of a mental model about how we organize ourselves, but I also think it can mean actual technologies. And Diane gave a great example about this with testing, right? That we spent weeks wasting time on a previous generation technology, PCR, that's well understood and has advantages, but while at the same time ignoring some of the new emerging technology. And as an example, there's technology called metagenomics, and that's the analysis of environmental samples using genomic sequencing. And something government could be doing today is providing incentives like contracts and monetary prizes while setting strategic goals to allow private companies to come in and offer their solutions, the best ideas to solve the problems rather than coming out and saying, well, we need PCR testing that meets these specific requirements at this certain scale, come out and say, we need the best testing solution possible, bring us everything you have and allow the private industry to come up with those solutions and then government can offer financial incentives. We're trying to find positive examples coming out of COVID. Operation Warp Speed, pre-buying massive quantities of vaccines while they were still under clinical trials, while not knowing whether they would be approved or even successful. They removed that financial risk from the pharma companies involved so that as soon as they were approved, they were ready to be rolled out. And that sort of model, I think, could be very effective uh, going forward. I kind of want to bring this back to the concerns because I feel like this all sounds really great and, and positive and biotech is going to solve a lot of problems, but I'm really worried that it's also going to just create a lot of new problems, things that come to mind, things that seem kind of scary, like gene editing, massive bioweapons, just the ethics and the norms of using this technology across, not just within the United States, but around the world. You know, what are kind of the things that you guys track and are a little concerned about or working to, you know, preemptively solve? Okay, I can start on that question a little bit. And I think really what you're referring to is probably the dual use nature of biotechnology as we've been discussing them. So I think one of my greatest concerns in this space is that the technology is evolving so rapidly and our policy and governance tools move so much more slowly. So for example, in this space, you could think about a lot of the technologies that Austin described. And as we conceive of these novel biological platforms that can make great products that we're all interested in, those same capabilities can be used to make harmful pathogens, for example, or harmful toxic chemical entities. You can make those potentially with biology as well. So as there is, is benefit, there is also risk inherently involved in all of this technology. So my concern is how do we build biosecurity in while we are still at the front end of the development of these technologies? If we look at the 
computer industry as an example of how IT advanced really rapidly. And then we got to a point where we figured out we needed to apply some security controls. And at that time, by that time, it was always going back and fixing it, right? Always going back and trying to do some remediation because we didn't we didn't build it in at the get-go. So what I hope we can do here is do what I like to call biosecurity by design. Look at the technology capabilities or look at what it is we're trying to, to create or build with biotech. Assess it and figure out what the risks might be and plan for how to mitigate those risks going forward from the front end. Now, that also assumes that we all have great intentions and we know there's people in the world who may not have good intentions and they're not going to do such kinds of biosecurity if they're intending to do something nefarious. So from that perspective, we have to figure out ways, how are we going to detect if someone's doing something nefarious with biotechnology? And for that, we're going to really rely on the computational tools inherent in this digital convergence with biotechnology that Austin was describing. That may be the scariest thing I have heard this episode is that we could potentially at the beginning or bottom of the second inning, I think is where Austin said we were, that we could go the route of the modern IT development and infrastructure. So I am I am duly scared. Thank you very much, Diane. I know this is this is unusual for someone from industry that's going to request government regulation, but I think there's a real opportunity for government to set some rules of the road, not in how a, a technology should be used, because you're not going to be able to control proliferation, unfortunately. And that's to just add to your nightmare scenarios there, Lindsay, you think about nuclear proliferation, which is very dangerous, and obviously the government invests a lot of resources in protecting against that. It's really difficult to manufacture rogue nuclear weapons, especially by you know, non-state actors. Technologies like gene editing, like CRISPR, really easy to use and really low cost. The previous generation technology uh, was tools called zinc fingers. They took a PhD scientist months to master and they're teaching CRISPR to high school kids. And that expands a proliferation to actors who have nefarious intentions, but may be much less sophisticated than it would take to say, use nuclear technology in a way to cause harm. There's other things like DNA printers, that's, it's tech that doesn't exist yet, but it's just around the corner and that could be used and misused to synthesize viruses with ease. And so when I talk about what government's role in that could be alluding to what Diane said about how do we design in security from the start, that it's it's not necessarily in a researcher's initial top of mind to think about the security implications of what they're developing. Most of them are very good intention people that are developing these advances to save human lives to reduce our environmental impact and in general, make the world a better place to be a little bit cliche, but they're not always thinking about the dual use aspects of it. And I think that's an area where at a national policy level, we can lay out these rules of the road of if you're gonna build these advances in biotech where we're gonna be impacting humans and the environment around us, we need to think about the implications and just as Diane mentioned, engineer some of these safeguards from the beginning. And Diane mentioned as well, the challenges of government moving at the speed of industry, they're never gonna keep up with industry 
and as fast as they move. And so they, there needs to be a lot of flexibility in whatever framework has come up with to where it's uh, more broad-based and not extremely prescriptive. Because if you try to be extremely prescriptive, then those uh, ideas will be out of date before they're even published. No, that's excellent. And I think, you know, bringing in your perspective, you know, as somebody who is, you know, sitting at a venture capital firm working with venture funded companies looking, you know, how do we balance this public private relationship that is inherent in this bioeconomy, it sounds like. So Austin, as you know, as an expert in the field from your vantage point, and then Diane, I'm going to turn next to you. What are you watching for in the coming years? You know, as somebody who, who lives and breathes this on a daily basis, you know, what should our audience be, be watching out for? A few areas that, that we're watching and I'm interested and excited about are things like protein design, cell engineering, genetic circuits are all really interesting with a, a lot of different applications. And honestly, figuring out how we're going to secure and protect all of this immense biological data that we're collecting is a big challenge that I'm interested in. We're taking the world's largest analog data set, and that's both human and environmental biological data. We're sequencing it, we're digitizing it, we're storing it in the cloud, and we're not necessarily thinking about the cybersecurity risk uh, involved with it as much as we could be. And there's a, a lot of excitement that we can make new discoveries using this data, but there's also a, a lot of risk. And that also goes back to not just Again, back to dual use opportunities. If we're thinking about the bioeconomy writ large, we're thinking about strategic competition with near peer adversaries. That biological data could be very, is a very valuable commodity for anyone as they advance their industries. And we're talking about competing uh, with China on biological manufacturing. The code, the design, and the data sets involved with that are all extremely valuable intellectual property. And if we're going to maintain an edge into the future, we have to think about protecting that from the start and designing security from the start. Got it. So security by design seems to be a big theme from today's conversation. So Diane, what are you looking at in this field? What will you be watching for? So like Austin, I'm excited about some of the cool kinds of products and treatments that might be coming down the road from biotechnology. In particular, I'm interested in the materials sector because at DOD, we're very interested in novel kinds of materials that could be made from synthetic biology, things like spider silk uh, warfighter uniforms, for example, or concrete runways that are made from algae or microbes instead of in the traditional way of making concrete. So I, I think there's probably a lot of cool material commodities that DOD will be able to use in the future that I'm excited about. In terms of the dual use space, I share all the same concerns that Austin has about digital biosecurity. I agree that there's an ever-growing universe of data out there. Not all of it is equal in quality, but I agree that the data that comes along with the biodesign of some of these products we want to make is highly sensitive in terms of intellectual property. And we are competing in the global space for this intellectual property. So I, I share that same concern. And I think one of the challenges will be determining which types 
of data need high walls built around them versus what kind of data we absolutely have to share in the interest of public health or the detection of outbreaks or things like that. So we got to come to some compromise on what should be shared in the interest of advancing the life sciences versus what needs to be protected in the biothreat space. I, I think also the, and I think Austin touched on this a little bit as well, is the availability of biology to everyone. It's very available to non-biologists, engineers, hobbyists, do-it-yourself folks, and inexpensive, as Austin said, and it's distributed. It can be easily distributed. So you could have a small distributed manufacturing capability that stays way below the radar screen. How would we go about detecting those or having a signature for those. So I, f I find that a big challenge as we head into the future with biotech. No, that's great. Well, Caitlin and I are so thrilled that both of you could join us today for what I found was a very balanced conversation. We got to talk about, you know, all of the economic benefits and potential that we can unlock. But we did also get to, you know, talk about some of the risks and concerns that we need to be thinking about up front. And I think that's so important in these conversations on emerging technology to to not get swept up into the hype while we you know keep our eyes on on the future. So thank you both again for joining us today for this episode of Tech Unmanned and hopefully we can have you back in the future when we have another discussion on the topic. Okay, Lindsay, what did you think of our experts? I feel like I learned a lot. I learned a lot. That was that was an awesome episode. I think to share with our guests, this is a monumentous occasion because oh. for the first time in COVID, Caitlin and I are recording in person together. Woohoo! It's very exciting. It is um, very exciting. We have recorded from various locations in different states across the country. Once in a car. Once in a car. I recorded in a hospital parking lot due to a family medical emergency. Everything's fine. But like, it's very cool. We are in person together. We are. And we are ready to chat about biotech and the just kind of eye-opening learning experience I think I just had about the different forms of biotechnology. I don't know if I'm going into it because we frame this in a national security context. Of course, what came to mind was bioweapons and like creating massive bioweapons that could just destroy economies and people, but also obviously incredibly relevant are biotechnology and the fight against COVID and how we're going to react to, you know, voracious diseases and, and quickly in the future. And so I felt like this episode was really great at kind of covering both the doom and gloom and scary stuff, but also really talking about the opportunities of biotechnology and where this field is going. Yeah, I agree. This was it was really broad. Uh, I remember, you know, talking with Morgan Dwyer before she went to DOD and she did a whole project on just synthetic biology. And we talked about computational biology and the bioeconomy and just all of the economic potential that is, you know, in this new field. I remember speaking with Austin before the episode about, you know, his concept of tech bio. And he really just talked about it's this convergence, this convergence of new technologies with biology. And we're really just at the very early stages of figuring out, you know, what are the applications? Where can we run with this? What are the, the pitfalls and the challenges? And how do we really grow this brand new sector of the economy? Yeah, what was something that he said was really tangible to me was when he started talking about how you're 
their coding genes and thinking about gene editing and biotechnology in this kind of computer science sense made a lot more sense to me than I think how I felt about it at, at the very beginning. But what also really struck me is how early on this feels. You know, unlike some of the other episodes where the technology is way underway and we're either in like a second revolution or we're trying to bridge the gap between a really well-developed commercial field and the government, biotech seems pretty new and emerging, really emerging for our Emerging Tech podcast. Yeah, I mean, when you think about a lot of technologies that we talk about in national security, a lot of times like the development is occurring in national labs, in research labs, or by the government, and it still is just wild to me that, you know, for example, Austin works at a venture capital firm that is investing in biotechnology startups. Like how accessible this technology is to and people who want to enter this field. Um, I mean, I know this is a theme that like we see across all the technologies we're talking about this season is just their accessibility and the lower barriers to entry. But bio would not have been on my list of like, oh, it's a thing that I can just go start a company on. Yeah, or it's a thing that you can teach students in a lab. I think Diane and Austin talked about that a bit of just the low barrier to entry and how you can train grad students on technologies like CRISPR, whereas before this type of technology and the activities would have to take place at such a high level with several PhD students have been training for years to do something. And just lowering that threshold while the technology is still new and changing and kind of figuring out where the biotech field is going is both exciting and scary. Yeah, I definitely see why. I think in DC circles, this is quickly becoming one of the more talked about issues. I remember, you know, having conversations back in the office pre-COVID with scholars and coworkers who thought that biotechnology was the most consequential, but yet most under-researched and under-talked about topic. And it wasn't just from, you know, Diane focused a lot on the national security implications, but then Austin bringing in the just the economic value that is is there to be unlocked. And how do we, I guess, deal with that? They both brought up a, a really good point on because this is such a new topic and because it spans civilian researchers, defense, national security, stakeholders, and, and decision makers. You know, for a lot of these issues, it's very unclear whose problem it is or like whose bucket a certain issue set falls into for policymaking, for governance. So like in the pandemic example that we used a lot, there are kind of competing sectors of does it fall under the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, or National Institutes of Health? We also saw, you know, the Department of Defense stepping in during COVID and mm -hmm. taking a big lead. And then I would also imagine, like, maybe this could be something that Homeland Security is interested in if we're talking about, like, targeted bio disease right. or, or weapons. Or, like, infectious agents. Do you now bring in DITRA or, um, like, CBRN roles and responsibilities? And so there's kind of like a divide and division of labor across this technology area or focus area that, like, doesn't apply well to just like one particular agency. And so I think depending on where you are in this, you know, if you're on the private sector side, is it clear to you who you're supposed to be engaging with based on what area of biotechnology you're working in? Is it clear, you know, what rules or, or governance or standards apply to you versus not? 
it just seemed like that was a thing that came up across a variety of examples from things with malicious intent or pandemics that are very unclear. I also think that unlike some of the emerging emerging technologies we're talking about, because biotech seems to be in the earlier stages, there's also not a lot of government organization and policy surrounding it. And so there is really an opportunity to get out in front. I mean, a lot of times we, when we talk about space policy, you know, space has been around and we've been interacting in space since 1957 with the first, you know, satellite. But the laws and international regulations and policy conversations are really stagnant. You could probably say that about nuclear too, is that we're kind of stuck, even though the technology keeps progressing past where we were when we made those policies or regulations or laws. So for biotech, maybe there's a great opportunity to get out in front of this and really do some forward thinking. And I say that very optimistically because when is the government ever good at getting out in front of things and doing forward thinking? Not sure. (laughs) I mean, this gets to both actually Diane and Austin. We're really big on public-private partnerships. You know, examples for tackling antibiotic resistance or hybrid organizations to kind of bridge this gap and being able to to really kind of tackle some of these problems for us. I think the role of the private sector here can't be understated. But I will say there's like a little bit of hope because biotech is often used in conversations about AI ethics and norms and standards because the bio community as a whole does have like a pretty set understanding of like standards and norms for use and ethical development and research. That has been a really interesting example of the role that scientists and researchers and professional societies can play in developing technologies. And so we'll have this conversation in the AI field of, you know, what is the role of AI professional organizations in setting norms around ethical use? And the bio community is always kind of used as that exemplar of here is a community with like a pretty well-accepted understanding of ethical use and research. That's really comforting. I mean, (laughs) is it though? I don't know. For biotech, I'm I'm glad there are people out there and that these kind of ethical conversations are already happening, even if the technology is not quite there yet. But I think it'll be really interesting to watch, especially as the bioeconomy grows and to see kind of what kind of effects come out after this global pandemic of does it grow faster or slower in certain directions due to what we all just experienced. Yeah, I think there will be kind of along those lines two big two big outputs. One is I do see a growing focus on bio issues in the think tank and policy adjacent space. I know from having spoken with colleagues that are right now trying to find research on bio, there's not a lot out there. And so, you know, we'll highlight some things in our show notes, but there's not a whole lot of scholarship, at least in our think tank land, on these issues. And so I think having Having more focus and attention on it will be helpful to, you know, like you said, get us to a place where we can have proactive policymaking to get out ahead of these issues. And it has, I guess, on a second front, raised awareness or at least put on the radar of the current administration the, you know, threats to national security from things like pandemics and thinking through what is the Department of Defense's role in that kind of whole of government response to something like a global pandemic or a national health crisis. And so it's making us think a little bit more about what do we consider national security threats and how do we prepare to address them? 
As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. As always, please visit our show page at csas.org slash techunmanned for show notes and more about our guests and some reading and things to learn more about biotech. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at techunmannedpod. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review this series wherever you listen to podcasts. We will see you in two weeks. Bye.